Most public school students don't have a choice of what school they attend. But some cities are experimenting with the idea that maybe they and their parents should have that choice. Within each one of these zones of choice, families can now apply to all schools in their zone of choice instead of them being required to enroll their child in the single neighborhood school they had access to before. And so because this policy only affects roughly 30 to 40 percent of the school district, it creates this what economists call a natural experiment. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we are looking at the idea of school choice and what happens if you give public school parents and students options. The idea has been the subject of political debate for decades, with vouchers, magnet schools, charter schools. But several public school systems in large cities are trying versions of choice that simply allow residents to make selections within an expanded boundary instead of just the local neighborhood. Today, we're hearing about the impact of such an experiment on student achievement. My name is Christopher Campos, and I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. And my favorite pie is pecan pie. Well, Chris, let's start with a short history lesson of school choice in America. Uh, We've had public schools since before independence, Boston Latin opening in Boston in 1635. When did school choice come on the scene and why? School choice came on the scene in the 1800s as alternatives to schooling for people that were primarily Catholics. Um, And so there was this kind of initial wave of kind of school choice that was very different from how we think of school choice today. And that's kind of what existed until around the civil rights era where there was school choice reappeared, but from a slightly different and more political angle as a response to the Brown v. Board of Education. And if we fast forward to today, it's no longer about vouchers versus public. I think there's a new element of school choice, which is public school choice, where one of the most pressing policy issues in the K-12 space is this question about whether students in the traditional public education system are better off under traditional Uh, neighborhood-based assignment, which is prevalent across the United States, or of these new centralized systems of choice in the public education system produce better outcomes for them. So how exactly does school choice work? And can you talk a little bit about where it's most popular or prevalent? There's been this rapid rise in the adoption of centralized systems of choice in public education system in places such as New York City, Denver, Indianapolis, Chicago, and more recently, Los Angeles. The idea is that instead of you having one neighborhood, a school that's assigned to you based on where you live, you now can apply to many options, whether it be district-wide or sometimes it's still constrained based on where you live. So the idea is to give families more options that are still in the public education system, but you're no longer just tied to your residentially assigned school, which is usually just one school. So it's an expansion of choice in the public education system. So then where do charter schools fit in? 
Yeah, so charter schools are kind of an, another element of choice that's also public, uh, but they're not necessarily tied to the incumbent school districts that kind of operate nearby to where charters exist. I think the reason why today, I think school choice is more of a political, or, I mean, there's political allegiances behind school choice, yeah. is because charters are introduced as an alternative to public school districts. So they operate within kind of the same boundaries of, a, of an incumbent school district. But if a student were to leave the public school district and enroll in a charter school, that school district would lose the dollars that they receive for enrolling that child in the public school district. Okay, and that's not the case with, with school choice? Not the case in the kind of work that I've been doing, okay. where these are just expansions of school choice within the public school district. So there's like... Yeah, there isn't kind of that loss of dollar or loss of money from losing the kids. It's just kind of a reallocation within the public school district. You set out to measure how effective school choice is uh, in terms of student achievement. And you decided to look at the Los Angeles Unified School District, LAUSD, and its Zones of Choice program. So why Los Angeles and how does Zones of Choice operate? So kind of an open question in kind of the policy world as it relates to K-12 education is if students are better off under traditional neighborhood-based assignment, which is prevalent around the United States, or if kind of they're better off under these increasingly popular systems of centralized choice. That question is hard to address just because whenever a school district adopts these systems of choice, it's usually the entire district at once. And so it's really hard to make comparisons across districts because there's differences across districts. It makes it hard to really isolate kind of the causal effect of these systems of choice on student outcomes. And so what happened in Los Angeles is this weird and unusual case where in the high school setting of LAUSD, they introduced this program called the Zones of Choice Program. It starts from the status quo, where the status quo in LAUSD is that every kind of neighborhood is assigned one high school. And that high school was determined by some boundaries, some attendance zone boundaries that the district draws. And so different neighborhoods are allocated different high schools. And each neighborhood is allocated one high school, for example. What the Zones of Choice program does is combine these areas to create multi-school zones of choice, where instead of you having access to one school, you now have access to several schools nearby. And so what they did was they created 16 of these markets across LAUSD, covering part, primarily disadvantaged areas of Los Angeles County in central, south, and east LA, but there are some in the San Fernando Valley. And within each one of these zones of choice, families can now apply to all schools in their zone of choice instead of them being kind of required to enroll their child in the single neighborhood school they had access to before. And so because this policy only affects roughly 30 to 40 percent of the school district, it creates this what economists call a natural experiment. Um, and so that's kind of the motivation for focusing on LAUSD and the Zones of Choice program, because it provides this unique perspective, which other settings that introduce these systems of choice do not provide. And what you're dealing with here is a, a huge population, right? I mean, LAUSD is one of the largest school districts in the country, if not the largest. It's the second largest school district after New York City. 
which is the largest. So you're working, even at 30, 40%, you're working on a very large population of students. That's right. That's right. Okay. So let's talk about what sorts of factors you were measuring. Um, obviously, standardized testing is one very common element that, that is used to determine how students are doing. Uh, what else did you look at, and how did you do the comparison? Yeah, so in addition to standardized tests, which are common in these types of evaluations, I also looked at college enrollment rates, um, because these are high school students, so college enrollment is just on the horizon. I also looked at SAT scores, uh, high school graduation as an outcome, and just the portfolio of classes they're also taking while in high schools. So those are the primary outcomes I look at. The key idea in the evaluation of this program is let's compare kids who happen to be living in zones of choice neighborhoods to those that aren't living in zones of choice neighborhoods, and let's just compare changes in their outcomes before and after the policy to get a sense of like how this program causally impacts their standardized test scores, college enrollment, high school graduation, SAT scores, portfolio of classes. And that's obviously in aggregate, right? I mean, you could have a student who would do well either way or poorly either way. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So this is going to kind of measure kind of a, a measure of the average effect across students that are affected by this policy. So let's get to the results. Uh, how did students in zones of choice schools fare compared to students who did not have choice? Um, Let's start with in terms of standardized testing and, and college enrollment. Before going into the results, it's good to just benchmark what I'm about to say uh, with the pre-existing achievement and college enrollment gaps that existed between the zones of choice neighborhoods and the non-zones of choice neighborhoods. So before the policy expansion, zones of choice kids were graduating high school performing roughly 20% of a standard deviation more poorly on standardized exams. It's hard to translate what that means kind of to a general audience, but that's a pretty sizable achievement gap. Zones of choice kids were two percentage points less likely to enroll in college than non-zones of choice kids or kids living in non-zones of choice neighborhoods. That's just kind of what is the state of kind of LAUSD before the policy expansion. Pre-choice. Exactly. And so if we fast forward six years to 2019, so the year before the pandemic, that achievement gap is essentially gone. Um, the college enrollment gap has flipped, if anything, but it's also been eliminated. So these between neighborhood disparities in educational outcomes that existed before the policy expansion have been eliminated by the program um, and also find substantial increases in SAT scores, 10 percentage point increase in the graduation rate. So all around, it doesn't matter what outcome you look at. It seems like this policy was effective in reducing these between-neighborhood disparities in educational outcomes. Was that regardless of what percentage of the students who could make a different choice did? Like, what, what was the uptake by the population that had it as an option? We can get a, a sense of that because we know what each student's counterfactual school would have been because before the policy, they were assigned a school. So we can see like what percent of students are applying to schools that aren't that school. So roughly 50 to 60% of students 
rank a school at the top of the rank order list that is not their traditionally assigned neighborhood school. Hmm. So there is a lot. There's demand to leave that neighborhood school. Yeah, so at least half. Yeah, but because of capacity constraints, um, roughly 30 to 40 percent of kids actually enroll in a school that is not their neighborhood school. That's still a sizable increase in the amount of students exercising choice. So there were students who wanted to exercise or families that wanted to exercise the choice, but they ran out of spots, basically. Exactly. And whenever a school is oversubscribed, there's lotteries that determine who gets those seats. So when you look at that jump that you talked about, um, or I suppose a, a narrowing of the gap, how do you know exactly what to attribute that to? Like, is that a school being just a better match for a student? Or are you looking at a jump in the overall quality of the education that they're getting? How can you tell? So economists will tend to propose two potential channels that could lead to these improvements and outcomes. The first rests on this idea that parents inherently know what is best for their children. So if you give them more options, they'll be able to more effectively sort into schools that best suit their children's needs. And that would lead to improvements in outcomes through an improvement in the student school match quality. Another channel is that now, because schools have to compete for enrollment or for students, that's going to make schools improve their quality. And that's another channel through which student outcomes could be improved. When I kind of explore these two channels, I find that improvements in student school match quality are not that large. And if anything, these gains are primarily explained by overall improvements in school quality. And so the next natural question is, why are schools improving or what is it that they're doing? And to answer that question, I'm a bit more limited in terms of what I can do, but I can try to build a case that schools are responding to the competition. And I do that by constructing a statistic that can measure the amount of competition schools faced at the onset of the program. And then I just ask, are the schools that face the most competitive pressure, are those the schools that actually improve the most? And that's exactly what I find. I found it interesting that you saw an increase in suspensions after choice was introduced. Why do you think you saw that happening and what happened over time? The increase in suspensions is an interesting finding. And to just take a few steps back, In the last decade or so, charter schools have been extensively studied and researchers have been able to identify certain effective charter schools and some of their best practices. And this bundle of practices that certain effective charter schools adopt has been referred to as the no excuses approach to urban education. And in that bundle of practices, there tends to be an emphasis on discipline, uh, high expectations, Um, But discipline is usually a distinguishing kind of feature of this bundle of practices. And that usually is associated with more suspensions. And so while I can't necessarily claim that these zones of choice schools resorted to the no excuses approach to urban education, the evidence does seem to suggest that they seem to adopt one of the most distinguishing practices in that bundle that comes with the no excuses approach. Um, So it's suggestive that the schools did respond and adjust the way they're doing things within schools. 
uh, leading to increases in suspensions as well. But I can't necessarily tie that back to some of the effects I've mentioned a few minutes ago. All of this is just suggestive. Sure. What about how students felt about the overall school experience? Uh, Presumably, if they like it more, they're going to do better, right? Does that bear out in the findings? Do they like school more when they get to choose it? Yeah, so every since 2010, LAUSD administers the school experience survey where they ask students a variety of questions. And some of these questions include how satisfied or happy they are with their school. And another question is like how much they think their teachers exert effort in trying to help them out when they're struggling. And related to the first question, I do find that zones of choice kids are more likely to report they're satisfied or happy with the school they're enrolled in. I also find that Zones of Choice kids believe their their teachers help them or exert more effort in trying to help them succeed when they're struggling. So, you know, you may be concerned that because I find an increase in suspensions, maybe students are less likely to be satisfied or happy with their school. But if anything, I find the exact opposite, that they're more satisfied with their experience and they believe their teachers are working hard to help them when they're struggling. So let's talk about some of the public policy implications here. Uh, It it certainly seems from the research that overall there is a benefit to school choice. What does that mean for the public school system overall, nationwide? I'm a bit cautious in trying to say that like what I find in the Zones of Choice program would necessarily replicate in a variety of other settings. What this is is a case study that shows that these increasingly popular systems of centralized choice can improve student outcomes and lead to sustained reductions in achievement gaps. Now, there are some caveats to the zones of choice setting that I think are worth mentioning. So these neighborhoods that were affected by the program are located in relatively disadvantaged areas of LA County, where 90% of these kids are classified as Latino or Hispanic, and roughly 90% of them are also classified as poor by the district. So they're very segregated in terms of race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. It's unclear to me what would happen if we created a zone of choice that integrated across race or across socioeconomic status. Like if you've been following some of the news that comes out of New York City, you know, wealthy families tend to be averse to integrating across socioeconomic status or race. And so for this reason, Um, it's unclear what would happen if we created zones of choice in that manner and whether or not they would produce the same improvements in student outcomes. So just going back to your original question, I think this serves as a case study that these systems of choice can improve student outcomes, but more work needs to be done uh, in terms of studying these potential impacts in a more representative set of cases or, or settings. Is there any talk in Los Angeles of expanding to those, what, 60% who do not have a choice? So the Zones of Choice program has expanded since this study came out. So now there's some middle schools that kind of have, there's Zones of Choice at the middle school level and some at the elementary school level. Um, And so there is some discussion, um, but it's mostly been at the middle school and elementary school level. Is school choice more expensive? Would that be a barrier to more districts making it an option? School choice as defined in this particular project is not necessarily more expensive. All this program really does is just redraw some boundaries and just change 
the schools that families have access to. It's not leading to an increase in spending or anything like that. So in that sense, I, this isn't kind of a substantial change in the amount of spending happening within the school district. So it's not like families are making these choices based on, oh, you know, it has a nicer facility or, oh, it has teachers who are paid more. Um, it's pretty equal across the board? Yes, because remember, this school choice program is within the incumbent school district. So this is not like a form of choice that is charters versus public schools or vouchers versus public schools. In those comparisons, there are differences in costs, but all of this is still operating within kind of the incumbent school district in Los Angeles. So where do you go from here? You have the results of this study. Um, Are there questions that you still want to answer? The questions that most interest me in the school choice literature is this old question about what parents prioritize when they choose schools. So, you know, if we take a step back and just kind of think about the different potential set of policies we could implement in the K-12 space, school choice policies are obviously one set of policies we can implement. And most school choice policies are motivated under this notion that parents will reward effective schools and punish ineffective schools. But empirically, that tends to not always be the case. What people have found in settings such as New York City is that parents tend to sometimes prioritize the composition of kids at the school and not necessarily prioritize factors that contribute to student learning. And so what does that mean? That means that parents, when they choose a school, they're just going to choose a school where all the rich kids are enrolled at or things like that. And that would produce adverse outcomes for school choice policies because that incentivizes schools to not necessarily invest in things that contribute to student learning, but instead invest in recruiting strategies to try to recruit more rich kids, for example. And so really trying to understand what parents prioritize when choosing schools. Is it that they prioritize the peer composition or is it that they prioritize factors that contribute to student learning is a first order important question in this literature. And so I have a follow-up paper that does that in the zones of choice setting. All right. Well, maybe we'll have you back to talk about that one at some point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Chris Campos, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.